0: I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. For thousands of workers not on the front lines, COVID-19 has ushered in a new era. Will we ever return to the
1: office, the rows of desks, and the nine-to-five work? One of the kind of real takeaways of the pandemic has been a number of companies saying, we are finally willing to adjust our thinking on the way we work. Offices and our working lives may have been pretty similar for a long time, but this has shaken us up and proven that we can work differently.
0: And later, when work won't love you back author and journalist Sarah Jaffe on why we should expect a lot more from our jobs
2: and not just pay. We've had it sort of drilled into us on the one hand that we will be punished if we don't work. And then on the other hand, we're sort of promised that if we do work and we find good work and we do what we love and blah, 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 we will be happy and fulfilled and whatever. In between those two things, you get a lot of cognitive dissonance. There's a lot of struggle.
0: The changing nature and value of work in a post-pandemic world, all ahead on Life Examined. For many people in white or some blue collar jobs, work had a certain rhythm for decades. The commute, the cubicle or desk, the consistent hours, the managers. And because of the amount of time we spend working in this environment, it has a massive impact on us. Not to mention the extent to which these jobs and careers heavily factor into our identities. The pandemic has done something truly unique and perhaps without parallel. It's essentially ripped up the playbook and said, here's another way of working. For some, it's been liberating, getting hours back from long commutes and spending more time at home. For others, it's been a distracted nightmare. Chip Cutter has been closely watching and making note of all of this. He's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal. And what he's finding is pretty interesting. He says that even when the pandemic settles down, like it or not, work may never be the same again. Well, Chip Cutter, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with kind of a big question, which I know may be a little hard to answer, but do you think that people are more or less happy working from home? What have you gathered from your reporting?
1: Well, in talking to workers in all sorts of industries, you get this picture that many have really settled into this rhythm of doing their white collar jobs from home. Um, You certainly feel a sense of pandemic fatigue. This this term that we've hit a pandemic wall comes up in almost every conversation I have with workers right now. I mean, so people are tired and they're exhausted, but I think many have also come to appreciate that working from home and working remotely gives people a sense of focus that they may not have had in their offices. And I think that's why the longer that we work this way, uh, the more people say, I'd like to maintain some some part of this, even when life maybe goes back to some semblance of normal.
0: Yeah, exactly. And And you've done a lot of reporting on how businesses may adjust to that or not. I'd love if you could tell the story of Dropbox. So this is a tech company. I take it up in Northern California. They're really embracing this new idea of work. What are some of the things that they're talking about?
1: Well, Dropbox is fascinating. They've been more prescriptive than most companies. And Dropbox has told its workers that Later this year, if it's possible to reopen its offices safely, it is going to basically make them off limits to individual work. The company says it wants people to do their own work at home, or if people insist on a space outside of home, they'll give them a stipend that they could use for a WeWork or a co-working space, but that they want offices to to exist solely for collaboration. So for example, you might go to a Dropbox office for a day of meeting with your colleagues. And that's it, you go in one day a week, other people might now live elsewhere and fly in for a couple of days of meetings at at Dropbox's uh, headquarters and offices. And and that is the extent of their in-person involvement for for that quarter. So Dropbox is now wants to call its offices studios. They're spaces for people to talk with each other. They are not spaces where you'll sit at your desk grind away, work on you know your individual tasks, they say that is not what our offices should be for post-pandemic. Wow. And, and how did they
0: come up with that decision?
1: Well, so the company's CEO, Drew Houston, had been thinking a lot about this. And with other executives and with the company's board, he said that he kind of realized that something had to be done. He called this a one-way door. And he said the pandemic dramatically changed the way people would want to work and expect to work going forward. And he did not want to kind of keep putting out dates, saying, "Hey, look for another email. We'll, we might return on this date," and then that gets pushed back. He wanted to give people a clearer sense of, of kind of where the company was thinking, and that's how they landed on this. It was it took a lot of debate even within the company, um, and this is certainly an adjustment. Uh, but the company thinks this is a smarter way to work going forward. It may mean that the company needs less real estate, but the company might also spend more money, for example, on travel costs if you're flying people in to come in these in-person meetings they live elsewhere and that sort of thing so it's not it certainly could be a cost savings it's but it certainly could also um you know cause the company to spend some money too
0: it's interesting i mean so they're going off the notion that it, it seems like our workers are happy uh, they are presumably just as effective and efficient working from home and now what used to be you know a set of cubicles or desks is going to turn
1: into meeting spaces right Well, that's right. So they're going to renovate their offices so that you now have far more lounge spaces, far more meeting rooms. Instead of rows of desks, as we've gotten used to at offices over the past couple of years and decades, offices will look, their offices will look different so that there's just a lot of different kind of communal areas where people can gather uh, together, talk about ideas. Uh, Dropbox, like a lot of companies, has said that they think there are certain tasks where it's still important to be together in person. So that could be something like setting goals, goals, or trying to brainstorm features for a new product, talking about someone's performance. There are some kind of aspects of our working lives where it's really good to be able to see someone's facial expressions, hear their voice, being able to be with them in person. But then there's other times where you're just kind of trying to think about something or you're trying to kind of put your thoughts together for a presentation, whatever that might be, where you just need quiet, you need focus, and your homes can be a really good uh, spot for that. So it will change how offices look going forward. And I think a lot of companies are starting to think about what exactly uh, you know that should look like.
0: And to me, Trip, I mean, it seems like this is tapping into something that I know a lot of millennials want, which is just flexibility and how they work and the notion that sometimes creative work can't just be done sitting in a cubicle when it's expected to be done. I mean, we don't really function that way. Perhaps it's been unnatural for hundreds of years. So do you think they're also kind of getting with the times and with what some
1: workers want? Uh, No question about it. And this is being driven, I I think, you know, primarily from younger workers who who do kind of expect to work this way. We've had more than one CEO say that the social contract has changed. The idea that we're gonna managers are gonna assess your performance by being able to watch you at your desk from nine to five. Uh, those days are over, and that just is an old, outdated view of management. Uh, one reason why so many companies are throwing around these words like a more hybrid approach to work. And yeah. it's interesting because every company has a slightly different view of what that looks like. Some companies are talking about, hey, maybe we'll come into our office three days a week. Others are saying uh, it's going to be totally up to you. Uh, it's it's So I think there hasn't been a real consensus. It's going to vary by each company. Uh, but many feel that there has to be more flexibility built in. Um, I think it's also worth noting, though, that there are some companies that are telling workers do not get used to this, that you know that we do want you back in the workplace five days a week as you were before. Um, I think inertia can be a powerful thing and some executives aren't necessarily willing to to kind of grant workers that additional flexibility that some might want
0: it's really interesting talking about this notion of management. I was talking to recently someone who works in kind of the, the traveling financial consultant world where they'd swoop in and, and work somewhere, you know, really hard for a month or so and then come back. And And she was telling me how uh, perhaps uh, it's been the managers that have been the most stressed out in this period. Because again, there was this old model. if If a butt is in a seat, they're making their widget for eight hours a day and a management can put their thumbs up and say, see, my people are working. We are being efficient, we are getting things done, but it's really changing when you cannot see the people that you're employing
1: working. I mean, did that come up in some of your conversations? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think in some ways managers have had the hardest job in the pandemic. They have been taught a certain way of supervising their employees over the years, and they've risen through the ranks largely by being able to see their peers and being able to evaluate their employees in person. Now they're expected to keep their workforce engaged, to rally the troops to keep productivity high at a time when everyone is going through such a difficult period. Everybody is feeling this fatigue. Uh, and and managers are there left trying to kind of sort this out. And it's the middle managers, the ones mm. who get no respect, even in the good times, uh, right. who are stuck trying to, tr- to sort of figure this out. And so I think... A lot of companies are embarking on new management training programs right now, saying we need to retrain our supervisors for this new way of working. Some of it can be as simple as in one-on-one meetings, structuring those differently uh, for the fact that, that workers are now remote and spending more time out of the office. Uh, but I think a lot of companies feel like they have to get their arms around this, and retraining managers is going to be a priority uh, for the rest of this year.
0: Have there been any studies that show whether or not workers are more or less efficient when they're at home?
1: so that's tough i think it's still a little bit early to say uh certainly i think many companies have found that they haven't seen a productivity hit that they can look at For example, if you're a technology company, the kind of code checked into the system, the code that's created, you know, they're not seeing any change there. Um, And and I think many workers just anecdotally would tell you that we're working more than we ever have. You know, you've heard so many stories of workers who basically get out of bed, start working and work until the end of the day, more so than they ever would have when they were commuting and going to an office. Uh, That said, I, I think companies do realize that there are certain Processes that are taking longer now, uh, just you know, companies that have implemented new systems that have launched new products. They say that there is. A little bit, you know, uh, just it, it takes it, it might take longer just because you can't walk over to somebody's desk. You can't have that meeting where everybody just talks and hammers it out in person and then goes back to their desks and keeps talking in the hallways and that sort of thing. Um, so I think companies are still trying to figure that out about what, you know, uh, and, and I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to kind of seeing those academic studies, um, kind of looking back and seeing whether this, this has been a period of, of productivity as we all expect.
0: Yeah, and you hit on something there too, which is this question of work-life balance within this new workplace. I mean, there is the example that you just said of the person that wakes up, rolls out of bed to their to their desk right next to their bed and clocks in the second they get out. And perhaps those people might have benefited from a commute where they had some time in between work. Uh, and home, and then you hear the people that say, "Oh my God! Thankfully, I, I don't have to drive an hour and a half to work. I get to go work out. I get to spend more time at home." So I guess I mean there, there really are a lot of trade-offs, one way or another.
1: It's it's really true. I mean, I think about personally. I used to walk home a long walk from the Journal's newsroom in, in Midtown Manhattan. And I just have realized over these past couple of months how beneficial that walk was, that just mm. helping to kind of make sense of the day and figure out what I need to do for the next day. And certainly I can replicate that in a remote world. I can take walks and do all that. But you you forget you've had these rituals in, in our past working lives that really served us well and provided those buffers of disconnection and helping us get ready for the next day that I think have taken time for us to kind of replicate as we're working uh, differently now. And so I think um, there's still a lot to be done on that front as well to get comfortable working this way.
0: I wonder if we could also talk about this question of let's say workers suddenly have the opportunity to no longer be in an office and they can actually move and be wherever they want to be. Because I talk to a lot of folks who live in these really expensive places like the Bay Area or Los Angeles, maybe even New York, cannot afford homes, would rather be somewhere else, and are saying, hey, why don't we move to a smaller place and get out of here? I know people are trying to move to the mountains or small places in Oregon. I mean, do you think we could see some kind of a migration of workers going to places that maybe um, aren- haven't been a- a- as densely populated as we've seen in the past decades?
1: I think absolutely. And we are already starting to see that migration. You've certainly seen it from San Francisco and the Bay Area, for example. One reason, rents have come down a bit in in that area. Um, And you've heard this from real estate agents who now see this influx of workers from other places who are looking to kind of set up lives in, in, in more remote destinations. I think that is a trend uh, that, that will continue. How companies handle it, though, is interesting. A number of technology companies have said, you will take a salary adjustment if you move, that mm-hmm. we pay market prices, and the market price for a remote city in Oregon for, for an engineer may be different than it is in San Francisco, where there's so much competition for that talent. So I think it's been a, a kind of question that workers have had to ask themselves, Is are you willing to take a salary hit if, if your company is going to go that direction, or would just your quality of life improve in ways that it's worth it, even if you aren't maybe making as much before, but perhaps your cost of living is less, your quality of life is higher. Uh, it's, it's worth it. So I think a lot of companies are, are and then workers are trying to assess that right now. It's also brought up interesting tax questions. It's brought up question. you know, I think so many HR departments haven't totally been able to kind of grasp how to handle this. Some are asking, telling workers, please just tell us where you're working now. Other companies have asked people to move back to their home locations and mm-hmm. said, we need you to prepare for that. Uh, I think that's going to be a big theme this year.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I never thought about the idea of saying we've been paying, we've been paying you to live in San Francisco, not to go live yeah in the middle of Oregon. That that's a really good point. And and then it makes me also think about what's going to happen to to some of these massive. Um, compounds that places like Google has built or Facebook, right, where they basically said, you can almost live here, we'll give you your food and your massages and your dental appointments. I mean, what what happens to these really large campuses? And I also wonder what happens to maybe even some commercial real estate places where uh, companies are like, we could
1: downsize. That's it. These for for the campuses at places like Google and Facebook have really served as sort of elements of workplace branding. We all can kind of picture those luxurious cafeterias and just the rows of free food, right. all of which has helped these companies attract top tier workers. Um, A number of companies, uh, even beyond Facebook and Google, have said that we may not give up all of our real estate, but as we grow, we don't need to take on more space. And I think that's a real theme. We've heard that from Dropbox, we've heard that from other companies that have said, hey, you know, I can can keep adding workers without necessarily kind of adding the equivalent amount of real estate. I was talking to a small uh, company in Austin uh, a couple days ago that was saying that they've added 25% more staff. They don't have room for them to come into their physical office anymore, but that's okay uh, and that they'll figure this out. Um, I do think, though, that there there will – these physical spaces in Silicon Valley will remain in some forms. Perhaps they don't grow. Perhaps they shrink a bit. Um, But you've seen Facebook, for example – uh, Mark Zuckerberg, when he announced a real kind of uh, his vision for remote work and how the companies, um, you know, was thinking about work changing. He said, for example, that some workers, it would make sense for them to be in the office. And he hinted at, for example, more junior-level employees. You can think about the employees who would benefit, for example, from kind of closer relationships with their managers, mm-hmm. from kind of learning from their peers. We think about how we learn on the job, and so much of it happens by osmosis, by just hearing hearing peers across the room or hearing people in meetings. I think all of that can be tougher to do remotely. So there will certainly be a function for uh In person work. Um, I think it's also interesting. We brought up the food. We've seen kind of some of the big corporate cafeteria providers. Seduxo is one of them, the food services giant um, that has catered some tech cafeterias. Uh, It recently bought a company that will deliver meals to workers at their homes or Mm. that can do so uh, and that would be funded by people's employers. So you kind of see even companies like that sensing there's a shift, we need to adapt. Uh, And if it means getting you a meal on your doorstep instead of you stepping into a luxurious cafeteria, we'll do that
0: and it's so funny how far we've come not so long ago from this 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 overriding ethos in places like like facebook or google right these google were designed for people to kind of bump into each other that that the thought was like that's how innovation comes about by suddenly the engineer is talking to the other person and now we have a new product but certainly that that may change and i know that has to go into some of this thinking as well
1: it does those those kind of uh, you know opportunities for kind of you to just see someone in the hall who you might not set up a meeting with them, but suddenly you had a five minute chat by the coffee machine that helped you kind of uh, get through a problem or enhance a product that was built into the fabric of these companies uh, there there aren't necessarily great uh, ways to replicate that in the remote world. We've seen some some companies try. There are applications that can be built into the chat tools, like Slack, for example, that randomly pair you with different colleagues. So you say, Hey, I'll have a virtual coffee and a donut with a peer. Uh, I'm not choosing who that person is. This this application will tell me, you know, who I should meet. And, and so we've seen some companies go that route. I think it, it's a mixed success. Some people enjoy it. Others find it a little bit, uh, you know, kind of burdensome to have just some random meeting put on your calendar and yeah. then have an, another Zoom meeting uh, throughout the day. So I, I don't know. There's not a great kind of, uh, you know, way to kind of recreate that in, in the virtual world.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you've also written a bit on new technologies, which are evolving to help remote work, to help maybe Zoom fatigue or to make things just a little bit more palatable at home as we spend all these hours there. What are some of those?
1: Well, so you see companies uh, trying to make this better. And so part of it is is even non-digital, so companies giving people the, the flexibility to not appear on camera, for example, or saying, we will not schedule any meetings before 9am, or we'll give you some time off on Fridays. Adobe, the technology company, has done that. Uh, but we've also seen kind of companies develop different algorithms uh, to, to determine who should get access to Physical space in offices, not wanting to put that burden on managers. So it's almost uh, companies wanting to protect people's egos because as offices do reopen, there's limited space. And so nobody wants to be told they're not an essential uh, part of that company. We don't need you back, uh, but we might need one of your peers back. And so you've seen companies kind of develop tools that help to do that. So it's not a manager necessarily delivering that feedback, but it's an algorithm that helps to determine who should come back first uh, and and who's ready to come back, which workers are willing to come back, um, and and then kind of companies uh, going from there.
0: You know, and I think right now we we've been talking a lot about tech companies, we've been talking a lot about kind of more more white collar workers and I wonder if any of these changes will impact frontline workers or people doing essential work or are those those systems just stuck where they are?
1: What do you think? I'm so happy you brought that up because uh, I think it's it's we talk so much about work is changing, it really hasn't necessarily changed that much for those who have to be on the front lines of healthcare mm-hmm. or in food service or in grocery stores. People that we've really depended upon uh, throughout the course of this pandemic, Um, and and I and I think we haven't seen as much of a shift there. Uh, Certainly, you know, you've seen companies experiment with different ways to compensate these workers and and to kind of give them hazard pay, which has you know been something that some companies offered early on and dropped later. So, uh, you, you know, it's it's I think so much of this conversation has split on, you know, uh, along the lines of, you know, white collar workers versus those in person. And we just haven't seen uh, that kind of innovation or that kind of thinking about how to kind of uh, frontline work may change going forward.
0: Right. I mean, as much as we talk about telemedicine, maybe you know that's not necessarily going to be the answer for everyone.
1: That's right, and 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 people will look to return uh, in person and want to have those in person uh, meetings with their doctors and others, and and um, and so I think you know some of this uh, will some of these changes will be limited to those who really can do their jobs at home, and I think that's why it's been so confusing for a number of bosses and CEOs and other executives in office settings because they have had the luxury of being able to do their jobs from home. Mm -hmm. It may not be as smooth as it was before, but they can do it. And I think that's why many don't exactly know when it makes sense to come back, particularly now, when there um, are concerns still about the vaccine rollout. It's unclear how long it may take for most of the population to be vaccinated. There are, of course, concerns about the the different variants. Um, And so right now, it's actually a really difficult moment for bosses to say, here's exactly when we're coming back. And we've seen a whole range of different answers lately. Some companies are saying we want office workers back in March. Others are saying it's going to be after Labor Day. There's not a clear answer anymore I think it's so unclear and so uncertain uh, just what this next year is going to look like as we kind of continue to make sense and continue to wade through the pandemic.
0: You know, if we think about more people working remotely and and the changing nature of work, I mean, do you think this ultimately
1: adds up to job creation or or really the loss of jobs? Yeah, I think it it, it really could lead to job creation. I I think companies have found, for example, I, I think it leads to uh, in some cases, what we've seen before, where some of the kind of most dominant companies, uh, you know, think about the Amazons, others in the world, you know, this kind of sort of this phenomenon of sort of the winner takes all, I think we're continuing to see that. Um, and 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 those companies have been able to continue hiring through this and see kind of uh, the need to, to, to bring on more workers. So I actually think this this could lead to additional jobs, because if more people are working remotely, you can just think about how that leads to ripple effects in the economy. It may be, we've seen, you know, you know, for example, this year, and it's certainly some of this has been spurred by interest rates and, and just people wanting places to live as, they're, as they move out of cities. But, for example, there's been lots of hiring for people in the mortgage industry and in, in real estate. I mean, you just think about as our work lives evolve, it's going to cause the, uh, sort of a ripple effect throughout the economy and lead to you know, new jobs in other mm-hmm. places. And so um, I, I think, you know, economists are, are, you know, I think a little bit mixed, uh, you know, about kind of what this all might mean. But um, I think some are optimistic that it could lead to job growth.
0: How do you feel about this notion that um, that some are kind of questioning the idea of an eight hour workday or at least that they need to be worked from nine to five? You know, obviously, some people may want to see shorter days or they may want to see their days broken up how they choose, especially if they have things like kids that need help during certain hours. Do you feel that the conversation is moving in that direction at all?
1: I do, actually. We've seen a number of companies, even in the pandemic, start to experiment with this. Um, I, I talked to one company. It's it's a, it's a nonprofit in Denver, but they've certainly kind of followed um, some corporate principles here. Um, and they've, they've tried that. They've gone. They've said, we, we were just not working Fridays. It's going to be 10-hour days. No one can schedule any meetings with anyone on Fridays. Mm-hmm. And they've had fairly uh, good success with that. And so I do think kind of there there's this desire among workers to get more control of their schedules, particularly as we've gotten more used to working this way. And I think bosses are willing to explore more. I mean, I think one of the kind of real takeaways of the pandemic has been a number of companies saying, we are finally willing to adjust our thinking on the way we work. It may have offices and our working lives may have been pretty similar for a long time, but this has shaken this up and proven that we can work differently. Um, and I think that, that that has led to that more of the conversation of, of perhaps four 10-hour days or changing just the notion of how many hours you need to work, period. I think people... people... People not having to feel like they need to be in office for a given amount of time uh, really helps with this of not feeling like you need to have that button a seat from nine to five. It does open up the the chance for perhaps more flexible schedules. Mm.
0: Well, finally, do you feel that this moment we're in right now, the pandemic, the shifting in how we work is major kind of an inflection point for, for the economy? I mean, I almost can't think of another scenario in which things might be forced to change as much as they are now and and how they may never be the same moving forward. What are your thoughts?
1: I, I'm with you. This feels like a moment that, that feels like it lacks a, another parallel in some ways just in terms of how it has fundamentally reshaped our lives and fundamentally reshaped how we approach work, particularly for those white-collar jobs. And and I think uh, a number of companies are realizing even the leaders that we appoint going forward, the executives that we choose to 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 lead these teams – it's going to be different. We need a different set of skills. We need uh, to realize that the way people are managed and supervised needs to change going forward. You can just think about just the effects up and down an organization from doing kind of operating much differently than we have in the past. So I think it's going to be fascinating to watch kind of how this continues to evolve.
0: Chip Cutter is a reporter with the Wall Street Journal, and he covers workplace issues. Thanks so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. We appreciate it.
1: Really nice to talk. Thanks for having me. Still to come,
0: do you really love your job, or is it just a means to an end? Our next guest suggests it's time to break free from the shackles of work, and her solution is work less and demand more. That's coming
1: up on... Introducing the KCRW Donation Car. Designed to be recycled... This first of its kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW donation car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at KCRW.com/slash cars. Life Examined.
0: I'm Jonathan Bastion, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard from Chip Cutter, a reporter with The Wall Street Journal, who says that the fallout from the pandemic is forcing fundamental changes in the way we think and go about work. But is there something wrong with how we value work and how we've allowed it to define such a big part of our identity and happiness? It used to be that working was a means to an end. While the job may have been monotonous, at least it paid the bills. Today, we're expected to love our jobs, and employers say we can discover life's purpose through work. In her latest book called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone, author and journalist Sarah Jaffe argues that job satisfaction is a meaningless slogan. America's workers are getting shafted. They struggle for fair pay and have few guaranteed rights, especially when it comes to maternity leave, sick, or vacation time, or health care. Well, Sarah Jaffe, welcome to Life Examined.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Let's kind of go back into some of the history of this. Um, I mean, we all have grown up, I think, recently with the notion of loving your work, and it's got to be your passion. But I think we also know that this wasn't always the case. So if you were to take us back maybe to our grandparents' generation or even further, Talk about how work has evolved over the generations, because it's a big part of your book.
2: Yeah, I, you know, at the beginning of this book, I sort of try to go back to, like, the earliest moments in human history, like, hmm, how did we actually evolve, like, the gender relations we have now? And then how did that shape the working relations we have? And, you know, I think it's, Fundamentally important to sort of understand the beginnings of, of wage labor as a thing, as opposed to different ways that humans have worked over the course of human history. Right. And the way that, you know, it shifted from something you would be doing that maybe you still didn't really control if you were, you know, a serf in feudal times, to something where you left your house and you went to a job and you got paid for the amount of time that you worked at that job whatever that job might be. And then you sort of went home and the beginning of this distinction between sort of work and home and all of these other things that we assume are natural and then have, of course, all been upended on us during the pandemic. So, you know, that, that history has gone through a bunch of shifts. The way that people were expected to relate to work You know, at first, they weren't particularly expected to like it. You just didn't really get a choice. Mm. And then through sort of centuries of struggle, really, we got to a place where you weren't still necessarily expected to like the job that much. But at least we'd come to a period that, you know people like me referred to as the the sort of Fordist compromise, where you had this thing that scholars have called like the industrial work ethic, where, you know, you go to work probably in a factory or something like it for 40 hours a week, give or take, and if you do more than 40 hours a week, you get paid overtime, and you get decent benefits, you get health care, you get some vacation time, you get a weekend, and that's the trade-off for going to work. It's not that the work itself is going to be exciting and fulfilling. It's going to be that it allows you to have a decent life when you're not working. Right. And the decline of that kind of labor, right, the the shift away from industrial work, which happened for a variety of reasons, right, everything from sort of outsourcing that work to places that can do it for less money, to the automation of some of those jobs, to just the shift away from... Um, that model of production. So even when it's done, it's sort of done differently than it used to be. That meant a lot of changes for the, the industrialized world. It meant a shift away from sort of one wage for the family to women entering the workplace in mass. Um, and it meant a lot of questions about, you know, whether this work is fulfilling, what people had wanted from it, um, that were beginning to be raised in the 1960s and 1970s sort of get absorbed into this changing moment of capitalism. So then what we get now is a work ethic that expects us to sort of be flexible and networked and also really emotionally involved in our jobs.
1: Mm. When
0: did we begin to see kind of literature or this idea surrounding loving your job, the, you know, the job should fill you on, on this kind of deep, profound level?
2: Yeah, so the broad spread of that kind of ethic is fairly recent. It comes about in, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, really expands in the 90s and the 2000s. But, you know, the, the way that I tell the story in the book is I actually trace it through some of the kinds of work that people have been expected to love for a really long time. So I base the two halves of the book, one in the sort of unpaid work done in the home, which is historically mostly been expected to be done by women and done out of love rather than for money, and then on the other side, the sort of idea of the creative artist the person who's doing this thing that isn't really work. It's creative, it's joyful in itself, and so you're supposed to be sort of incredibly dedicated to your creative process, whether or not you make money at it. And the way those two narratives have actually expanded into a lot of what we think of as sort of normal paid work now. Mm.
0: Let's start with the with the question of gender here in women's yeah. work. I think this is fascinating because you talk about really, I mean, uh, the nature of a schoolhouse and teaching. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. mean, I think these days, things like nursing, for example, mm-hmm. um, where does that story begin?
2: Yeah, these are jobs that For, you know, at first, when we started having something that might resemble public schools, teaching was done by men, it was sort of the original gig economy work, at least in this country, right, you would have sort of traveling school teachers. And then as we spread and standardized and formalized public education, that was going to be expensive, right? And the people who were thinking about this in the beginning sort of make this argument that, A, women are really good with children anyway because that's sort of their their real purpose in life is to be mothering children. And B, women are probably married to a man who works anyway, or if they're younger, they're living in the home with their father who works. So they don't really need to get a full family-supporting wage the way we'd have to pay men. So those two ideas sort of come together in this narrative around sort of saintly mother teachers that people like Catherine Beecher put forward, and that still affects how we think of teachers today if we think about the fights that are happening right now in places like Chicago and Los Angeles, um, where the teachers have been pushing back on this idea that they should get back in the classroom and sort of be willing to sacrifice potentially their health and even their life in order to continue to care for these children. So, you know, those narratives have really, really long roots and and sort of insidious effects, even though, of course, teaching is not only done by women and a lot of men who teach really do genuinely love the students and the work and care deeply about it.
0: How, how does parenting philosophy in the 70s and 80s fit into this model too? I mean, this notion that you can be anything, you are special, yeah. and that go out and, and create a, a fulfilling career. And, and I, I don't think yeah. this is, of course, I mean, this is a fairly privileged situation if you grew up in a family like this. I think there were many others that said, J- good luck, get a job, yeah. try, try try, and just <laughs> you know keep the ship afloat. But right. But certainly there was a certain ethos that kind of yeah. crept into parenting in that era.
2: Yeah. And I think that's really interesting, right? Because you get this, too, of a lot of people who were industrial workers, that they would sort of say to their kids, like, I worked really hard in the factory so that you could do something better.
0: Mm, exactly. Right.
2: Right. That they worked, that putting your kid through school, along with buying a house, were sort of these, these tenets of the middle class that that was built by this sort of industrial compromise between organized workers and, and their bosses. And... I, you know, I remember this so clearly, and I'm 40, so I was born in 1980. And I feel like I grew up with, like, this weird combination of this thing where, like, on the one hand, my parents would be like, you can do whatever you want. Go to school and be smart and read lots of books, right. and you can do whatever you want. And then when I said, cool, I want to write fiction, they'd be like, well, you can't make a living <laughs> at that. Right. And it would be this thing, right, where it was like, oh, but you can't really do that. Um, And I I remember that, especially as I got a little bit older and I started, you know, thinking about college and stuff like that. And it was like, yeah, but what are you going to do to make money? Mm. You know, and it was there. There was always that awareness of that tension between wanting really badly to raise kids who believe they could do anything and also being aware that you can't actually do anything
0: right right and and I wonder now as a result we're kind of left with a bunch of mixed values in the current moment one is that you should still buy a home and the other Mm -hmm. is that you should still find a way to support yourself consistently
2: yeah yeah I mean it's 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 crumbling in so many ways, right? And I, I was saying to somebody earlier today, like, I graduated from college in 2002, I graduated from grad school in 2009, and now I'm living through, like, yet another crisis. Um, and so, you know, these these successive crises have disintegrated this thing to a point where, you know, I'm, I am on all accounts incredibly lucky that I have a functional career in journalism and yet like that just I hate saying that because I actually think that journalism is a really important function in a democratic society and that without good journalism we are doomed Um, and so I don't I don't think that I should be lucky to have a job in journalism because I think we need many many more jobs in journalism that already exist and that they should be you know in every city and town right and and the way that like the disintegration of this thing and and journalism only being one example of an industry, but it's happened all over the place. um, I end up feeling like, oh, my goodness, I am constantly scrambling to make sure that I can stay afloat in this, you know, this thing that's crumbling. And, you know, again, I'm 40 years old, I certainly have never been able to buy, let alone a house, an apartment. Um, And yeah, and that's and I'm fairly successful, right? I'm, I'm on here talking to you about my book. <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> and like, so, so, right? So this whole thing that's sort of coming apart, and the only answer that we get a lot of the time is just to do what you're already doing harder. Mm-hmm. But there's only so many hours in a day that I can work, and there's only so many places that will publish it. There's only so many hours a day you can work at you know minimum wage if that's all you can get access to and right now you know even a lot of those low wage jobs that people could at least you know get access to are are gone because a lot of things are still closed because we're in a pandemic and this just you know yeah, We can't, can't help but talk about that, can we?
0: But I, I'm so interested still in this kind of, this overarching philosophy of how you should love your job. And yeah. can you talk about how that's kind of now permeated to, to so many parts of the working world?
2: yeah I think you know, as I said before, I think some of this comes from just the the rise in the amount of people who are doing these kind of caring work jobs. Um, but the other side of that is we're you know the thing that that always gets repeated whenever there's like a factory closure or something like that is you know, learn to code. Mm. Well, you know, the people who are learning to code are also being told that they should love their jobs. and also, you know the the good jobs in tech are these, you know, these workplaces that have ping pong tables and all of these toys and, and it's fun and they feed you and they'll maybe give you a massage and you can bring your dog to work. And all of that is designed to make sure you spend as much time as possible at work.
0: Mm-hmm. I wonder how much of this is a very uniquely American problem or not. I mean, I, I, you know, we grow up also reading so much about the Protestant work ethic th- mm-hmm. and things of that nature and kind of yeah. like we only get ahead by just like working yourself into an absolute stupor and then falling mm-hmm. asleep, right? Do, do yeah. you think that is true? Does that hold up in this conversation?
2: So I think the Protestant work ethic is a really interesting one, right? Because it it was already a sort of when Max Weber was writing about it, he was already looking at the way this thing had been internalized by people who were no longer all that religious. Um, mm. And then so the, the the point that I'm sort of talking about, I actually take from um, French scholars, Luke Boltanski and Yves Chapello, who wrote a book called The New Spirit of Capitalism. Um, which is obviously right, very much inspired by Weber. And they argue, and this book was written in the 1990s, that we'd switched a bit to mm-hmm. this thing that expects more of you emotionally and it expects more networking and sort of less security and so you know i find that really interesting because it again like max weber was not american although he was fascinated by ben franklin um you know Boltanski and chapello are writing about this in western europe um i did some reporting in in addition to the us in the uk in canada in ireland um and draw from research in the book from you know places that include china and japan that said i do think america is as sort of global hegemon of the last Um, 70, 80 years, has a lot to answer for in the way that this has spread. And we, in many cases, we have, you know, the worst workplace laws in most comparable countries, right? In Mm. sort of advanced industrial economies, we are the only one without, you know, national health care, we're the only one without paid uh, parental leave you know, mandated by law. We just have, you know, the Family and Medical Leave Act, which entitles you to unpaid leave, which basically just means your boss can't fire you if you have a baby. Mm. Um, So, you know, we do definitely see the way that um, in spending a lot of time in the UK, for instance, around Brexit and all of these debates about sort of moving closer to America, a lot of people are, are Horrified by the idea of becoming more like the U.S., right. because they're like, "Hey, we actually like having a you know maximum work week mandated by law. We actually like having national health service. We don't want to be sort of more like America." And things like the unpaid internship are definitely an American innovation that Mm. we have exported and people do not thank us for it.
0: Right. So it seems like there's been a number of shifts. There's been the actual labor economy, right, the the middle class jobs. And then still what we're talking about, too, is this kind of expectation of work of what work should bring us at the same time. And I think that if we talk a little bit about kind of, again, a little more philosophically about the nature of work, I mean, do you think do you think we need work to give our life purpose? Is that also maybe where we have kind of run astray a bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think w- the the idea that we should take meaning from work is kind of an, a really macro level example of making the best with what we've got. Mm-hmm. You know, that we've we've naturalized it to a point that we sort of forget that we do it to get paid. Um, that you know that I I haven't been able to buy a house with the work that I have, but I certainly would be you know out on the street if I didn't have any job. Right. And you know we we see this with these debates about giving people expanded unemployment or you know fourteen hundred dollar two thousand dollar checks during the pandemic, and and people are literally saying you know well we don't want to disincentivize work. Mm. And it's like, oh, you mean the, the mask has slipped a little bit and you you remember that, you know, oh, if people could get by without working, maybe they wouldn't work. Right. And, you know, we, we've had, again, you know, decades and decades of policy designed to do that, like like welfare reform, right, which is something that I spend a bit of time on early in the book, is, is this is rooted in a very old sort of poor law tradition of requiring people to work if they are remotely physical, physically capable of it, and being really, really reluctant to give people any supports, even if they are raising children, which I think most of us would agree is very difficult and very important work to be doing. So we have, you know, we've we've had it sort of drilled into us on the one hand, that we will be punished if we don't work. And then on the other hand, we're, we're sort of promised that that if we do work and we find good work and we do what we love and blah, 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 we will be happy and fulfilled and whatever. And in between those two things, again, you, you get a lot of cognitive dissonance. It's, there's a lot of struggle. And so, you know, the question of what we would do if we didn't work is, I mean, it's one of my favorite questions to ask people when I'm reporting, but it's also... You know, I think it's it's interesting to think about the things that we do that are both work and not work. Child, you know, spending time with children being one of them, but also, you know, I'm a writer. When people ask me what I would like to do if I didn't have to work for pay, I still sort of talk about writing. I just like want to write a novel and not have to worry about mm-hmm. whether I can sell it. You know, I want to write creative things and and be able to experiment and not sort of worry that I won't get paid for it. And You know, the the joke about lockdown is everybody sort of started baking bread, right? Um, But these are things that, again, like a lot of people bake bread for a living. That's a job. Bread gets made in factories, in in artisanal bakeries, in all, you know, scales in between. And then also we make it in the home because, you know, it soothes us. Um, I have certainly done a lot of lockdown baking. And you're so, not alone you know, yeah. yeah 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 and so right. the question of like what is work is actually a really interesting one right that like do we need as humans some sort of activity that feels purposeful and meaningful i think so does that need to be wage labor i don't think so
0: right Right. So I mean, do you find that there's some some nobility or wisdom in in reaching back to some of these older values of of work that had boundaries and work that had benefits and work that had time constraints to it? I mean, mm-hmm. do you think there needs to kind of be some kind of larger kind of thinking shift to 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 uh, frankly kind of an older way of doing
2: things? I'm I'm leery of nostalgia because, you know, the older way of doing things was that men went to work sure. and women stayed home right. and, and certain people did not get paid a wage at all for what they did. So, um, you know, I, I don't I think that the sort of make America great again nostalgia has not led us anywhere good. That said, I do take a lot of of inspiration from periods of labor history where the thing that drew workers together across a vast, you know, disparate number of different kinds of work was a demand for shorter working hours. Mm. and these sort of demands where people you know whether they were working in a you know a sawmill or a you know clothing mill or a you know they were a blacksmith or whatever, like the demand that we would like to spend less of our day, under the control of the boss and more Mm. of our day, doing what we want to do. The the slogan of the eight hour day movement, right, was eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for what we will. And so I think those kinds of demands have a lot of potential to be really unifying without sort of then trying to sort of put us back in in a place where, you know, men were men and women were women and and sort of things that I definitely don't think we need to go back to. So, you know, there are lessons in these past struggles, I think, for how we think about and understand our relationship to work that don't require us to say like, oh, it was better in, you know, 1945. Um, We have a lot of advantages that people didn't have when they were struggling for an eight-hour workday, but we also have a lot of technological advances that have, have improved productivity immensely And yet, you know, the reality is that working people get a smaller and smaller share of that productivity. And the sort of chart is really staggering to look at. Mm. If you find the sort of charts of of productivity and labor's share of that, Um, the divergence is really telling.
0: Mm, Interesting. Well... I, I, I wanna get your thoughts on on just this, this absolutely crazy moment we're at right now, yeah. which is still in a pandemic a year later or nearly a year mm-hmm. later, and the ways in which work has changed so drastically. So yeah. how does this all kind of fit into the story of work? We are, you know, so many folks are at home, they're finding that they can work from home. I mean, the whole yeah. notion of remote work has changed. Yep. What are your thoughts on all of this?
2: Yeah, we've sort of been split into Kind of three broad categories, right? There are people who are still going to work every day, the essential workers, whether they're in healthcare or you know food service. The person at the grocery store downstairs when I go buy groceries, you know, that's one group. Then there's people like you know you and me, presumably, who are doing the work we were always doing, but from home. And mm. I was a freelancer, so I was working from home before all of this. So it hasn't even changed that much for me, um, other than I can't go out and do reporting in person nearly as easily. And then there's people who have lost their jobs. And we have like a massive number of people who have just been thrown out of work. And for a little while, you know, when we had expanded unemployment and the first round of of $1,200 checks went out to people, you know, being out of work temporarily wasn't actually that bad. And then, of course, all of that expired. And now people are are really desperate because, you know, Congress is still fighting about what we're going to get next. And Mm. it's... Yeah, so so that question, again, it's that thing of like, well, if you are out of work, but you are getting, you know, $800 a week, or whatever, plus, you know, a $1,400 check, and you're actually like doing okay for a little while, then being out of work might not be that bad. And it's certainly much better than, than having to go to work and, you know, risk your health. If you are working from home, and you're me, and this is kind of a habit that you've gotten into. Um, over a long period of time, and I live alone. Uh, my working life isn't like drastically worse than it was, but good lord, I have not left my house in three days. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> I have not talked to another human <laughs> in person in a while, mm. and so you know the things that actually made life meaningful outside of work being gone actually weirdly makes work more stressful. Mm. I find, I find myself like so much more emotionally invested in this thing, which is particularly funny, right? Because the thing that I'm doing right now is promoting this book about how you should not be that emotionally invested in your work.
0: <laughs> right, right. Um,
2: so I am the thing that I write about. And, you know, and then just the the real dangers of work that used to be, I talked to a, a person who worked at Sephora you know the makeup company early on in lockdown who was worried about you know when the job reopens and they were like you know this was a pretty good job before didn't pay that great it was a retail job but it was a pretty fun retail job I got to put lipstick on people and Mm -hmm. and you know that was cool um and now you know they said I don't want to die for lipstick and like that's just really striking right Mm -hmm. that like this thing that, that, again, was it wasn't a great job, it wasn't the dream job, but it was a, a decent way to make a living before. Yeah. And then it becomes something that you're terrified of. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is, is the place where, like, everything, you know, all of our conversations about essential work and what is essential work and our sort of recognitions around essential work. And I was thinking earlier of the workers at a GE factory, in Massachusetts who you know went on the picket line and demanded that instead of making airplane parts that they were making they wanted to make ventilators because they said you know this is this is important and these are necessary and this is we want to do what we can do to do life-saving work right now and I thought that was itself a really interesting statement on work and meaning that they were suddenly thinking really hard about like the thing they were producing and going like maybe the thing we're producing isn't the thing we need to be producing maybe we would feel much better about continuing to go to work in a pandemic if we were making things that would save people's lives from that pandemic
0: right well sarah jaffe thank you so much for the time today this is this has been a fun conversation and very illuminating we really appreciate it
2: yeah thank you so much
0: once again, that was journalist Sarah Jaffe. She's the author of the new book called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.